Hello, I'm Father Fred Caldwell, a Catholic priest in McKinney, Texas. And my name is George. I've been studying the Bible and religion all my life. Together, we'll be taking a new and often unexpected look at all things spiritual. And our podcast is named Soul Survivors. Good morning, Father Fred. How are you today? I am fine, George. It's a beautiful day again here in the Lord's Day. I feel good because Notre Dame beat Navy this past week, 42-3. to They're looking good. Well, that's wonderful for Notre Dame. This morning at breakfast, we were having a conversation that I thought would make an interesting podcast. We were talking about how Moses lived around 1300 BCE. The Israelite kingdom was divided around 920 BCE. So there's a three to 400 year difference between the divided kingdom and when Moses lived. And then we've been discussing how the Bible was written by somebody from the northern kingdom and how it was written from somebody in the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom source is labeled P by scholars for priest, and the southern kingdom writer was labeled J for Yahweh. Now, if these stories have different perspectives, because one's from the north and one's from the south, then Moses couldn't have written the first five books of the Bible, which is known as the Pentateuch. That's right. He could not have written it for that, and for many other reasons, too. And every thing that we discuss where there's is this positive that there's more than one writer. If a person wants to believe that it's literal and in, inerrant, then all he has to do is go to the computer and he will find all information you're going to find on there is about how Moses wrote the first five books. It's, it's like, this is what we've always taught and we can't change that because if we do, it means that we were wrong in the first place. So the phrase I've heard is that the Bible is the inspired, inerrant, infallible Word of God. I read in the Gallup poll in July of 2022, only 20% of Americans believe that the Bible is the literal, infallible, inspired Word of God. But it was like 40% in 1984. And now 49% of Americans believe the Bible is inspired but not literal. What do you think about that? Well, I think it has to be that way. For the people that read the Bible and they say that it's inerrant, everything has to be read just like it's coming off the lips of God. They have to be asking themselves, and we have to be asking ourselves, if that is true, how come God divides us so much? Every time we read the Bible, more people separate one from another. Here in the United States, just alone, we have over 40,000 different denominations. And it's not because God is talking 40,000 different ways. I came across a book last week called Inspired Imperfection by Gregory A. Boyd. And he's brought up some very interesting points. I highly recommend the book for anybody. It talks about how God, through the Holy Spirit, inspired these men. But the men wrote the Bible through their own culture, through their own time, with their own prejudices and their own human flaws. And so what we're reading is a reflection of God being revealed by imperfect people. So the analogy I thought of was if you have sunlight coming through a glass, the shadow of that light is going to be imperfect. If there's a crack in the glass, if the glass is dirty, if there's color in the glass, the light you see is a reflection of that window, a reflection of the flaws or characteristics of that window. And he said, that's the way it is with the Bible. 
Now, going back to Inspired Imperfection by Gregory A. Boyd, he says that the Israelites were influenced by the culture around them. And one of the examples he gave was animal sacrifices. He says that the, he calls it the ancient Near East, A-N-E, had animal sacrifices to their gods, that the gods would be attracted to the aroma of the animals being sacrificed and would come down and eat by smelling the aroma of the animals being sacrificed. But he was talking about how the, the culture in the ancient Near East was big into animal sacrifices, and the Israelites adopted those animal sacrifices. And he talked about God never wanted animal sacrifices, but since the Israelites wanted animal sacrifices, he said, okay, go ahead, have animal sacrifices. You're, when you give these sacrifices, though, you're, you're giving them to me, not to these pagan gods. And I wanted to read some verses that support that theory. In Hosea 6.6, 6, it says, I don't want your sacrifices or offerings. I want your love and for you to know me. Isaiah 1.11, it says, I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls and goats and lambs. In 1 Samuel 15.22, it says, To obey is better than to sacrifice. In Psalms 51.17, it says, the sacrifice of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. In Psalms 46, it says, sacrifices and meal offerings you have not desired, burnt offerings and sin offerings you have not required. In Hebrews 10.8, it says the same thing as uh, Psalms 46, that God did not desire meal offerings or burnt offerings. In Proverbs 21.3, it says, righteousness and justice is desired by God more than sacrifices. In Matthew 9.13, it says, I desire compassion, not sacrifice. And I believe it's Galatians. I don't remember the exact verse in Galatians, but it says, loving your neighbor as yourself is the entire word of God. Everything in the Bible is built around that. All right, so I presented a question to you at breakfast. I asked you, is lying always wrong, because we believe that lying is, is a sin, it's bad. And if we take that literally, that we can never say a lie, we can get ourselves in trouble. In the Catholic Church, we say that you pick the lesser of two evils. For instance, I was in the, a class in the seminary in Milwaukee. The teacher was telling us, you can never lie. And so he came to me and he said, do you believe that? And I said, well, no, not exactly. And he said, why is that? And I said, well, suppose that... Uh, my mother is in a house and there's some people that just hate her and want to kill her. And they come and they meet me and they ask me, is your mama in that house? I would lie. I would say, no, she's not in that house. And the teacher told me, he said, I would not want to be in your shoes because they're going to find her and kill her and you're going to die with that sin on your soul because you've lied. He said, I would not want to be in your shoes. And I said, well, that's okay. I guess I would not want to be in your mother's shoes. I'm going by memory here. So the facts may not be exactly right. But I remember reading something that during the Great Depression, politicians and their cronies would go out and talk to people, especially Catholics, and say, hey, I want you to vote for my candidate. Well, the candidate's beliefs went against the religious principles of these people, but they desperately needed money. They were starving. They were hungry. Their family hadn't eaten. And so they took the money and then they went to a priest and said, hey, I took this money and said I would vote for this candidate, but I don't believe in what this candidate is saying, do I have to vote for him? What do you think the priest told those people? 
I don't know, but I know what I would tell them. I would say, you take that money and buy food for your family, and then you vote your conscience. That's what the priest told them. Another example of where kindness is more important than telling the truth is, let's say my wife came up to me and said, what do you think of my new dress? But I don't like the dress at all. I have a few choices. One, I could tell her the truth. Oh, I think that dress is hideous. If I did that, I'm not going to have a good day. I could lie and say, oh, that is the most beautiful dress I've ever seen. Probably not the best option either, but at least I'd have a peaceful day. I could change the subject, which I think is what you advocate. <laughs> oh, well, uh, look at look outside, man. It's 105 today. And then there's a fourth option. I could say, oh, that is a beautiful color. I really like this and that about the dress, but it doesn't flatter you as much as your other dresses. So what do you think about that? I like the last one the best, only I would probably leave off the last part. I would just say it's a beautiful color. She can figure out whether it's going to flatter her or not. Now, going back to how the Israelites were influenced by the ancient Near East, the culture around them at the time, as we mentioned, animal sacrifices were implemented by the cultures around them, and so the Israelites adopted that practice. Another practice that the ancient Near East had was sacrificing children to their gods. And I believe the story of Abraham allegedly being told by God to sacrifice Isaac is a reflection of that culture in Genesis 22. I think so. I think it can possibly be showing how there's something more important than sacrificing. But the faith here is what they're talking about, the faith of Abraham. That happens to be in chapter 22 of Genesis. You know, we mentioned a while ago that we had two sources. We had P for the priest and we had J for Yahweh. Then we have one that's come up now that doesn't fit into either one of those. And we call it E because their God was called Elohim. In English, it's God. They're going to use God as, as the priest would, but they're not going to have the details and all of the commands of, of this God about how, how many rooms to make on an ark or how many days it takes you to create the world. It's got a God in there, but it's not the same writer as the one that has the P. Now, it tells a story more like J, but it's not exactly like J because J uses Yahweh all the way through its writings, or mostly all the way through, and this one uses God all the way through. So we've already had the same story told twice, once by J and once by E. This reading today, according to the grammar and all that's used, it lines up with a set of writings that's different than J and different than P. And this is going to start this way. If you got your Bible, Turn to chapter 22. In chapter 22, we have the first verse. This is called the testing of Abraham. Sometime afterward, God put Abraham to the test. Now, you notice it's not Lord, it's God. So that means it's not from the J source. Sometime afterward, God put Abraham to the test and said to him, Abraham, and then you hear, here I am. That is an expression that means all through the Bible, I'm willing to do your work. If I'm standing here beside you and I say, uh, I want you to do you believe this and, and I want to talk to you and you say, here I am. I already know where you are. Here I am means use me. Sometime afterward, God put Abraham to the test and said to him, Abraham. And he says, here I am. He replied. Then God said, take your son, Isaac, your only one whom you love 
and go to the land of Moriah. There offer him up as a burnt offering on one of the heights that I will point out to you. This is a horrific command from God if we take this literally. But this writer had put this in here just to show what Abraham's faith is about. This is not God talking. Just like we said before, this is a man that's writing this. And he says, there, offer him as a burnt offering on one of the heights that I will point out to you. This is, remember, this is not the horror of God's command. Verse 3 says, Early the next morning, Abraham saddled his donkey, took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac, and after cutting the wood for the burnt offering, set out for the place of which God had told him. We've gone now the last chapter. He was just being weaned. Now he's going to be walking with his dad, and he's going to be pretty good size because he's going to, they're going to walk for three days. Verse 4 says, On the third day, Abraham caught sight of the place from a distance. It tells us what Abraham is doing. But you, I wonder, you know, George, what do you think would be going through Abraham's mind when he's taking his child out there? Or when he hears it, and then when he starts out with his child? What's he going to be thinking, do you think? I believe in the New Testament. I don't have the scripture in front of me, but it says, Abraham reasoned God could raise Isaac from the dead. So his reasoning was, even if I sacrifice Isaac, God is all-powerful, and he can raise Isaac from the dead and thus continue the promise that there will be many nations after me through the lineage of Isaac. There are certain things that God cannot do, and one of them is he cannot lie. So if he's telling Abraham that he's going to have a progeny for the rest of the time, and they're going to rule nations, they're going to, they're going to fill nations, it's possible that he trusts God and he knows that that's going to be. Or another way to look at it is, why did this man write it this way? I think maybe he's just trying to make it look really the most terrible thing you can think of, but Abraham keeps his faith. That way it would be written by a man just to prove how great that the faith is of Abraham. Number four says, on the third day, Abraham caught sight of the place from a distance. I wonder how he knew what place it was that he was going to. Verse five says, Abraham said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while the boy and I go over there. We will worship and then come back to you. So he's saying we, we are going to worship and we are going to come back. So whether it's as George was saying, this is something that Abraham knows God's going to make it work out right. Or this writer is writing it and he's, he knows what the end result is going to be. This is one of the greatest masterpieces of the Bible. You've got suspense, you've got drama, and you're going to have a happy ending. Verse 6 says, So Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. Now, laid it on him for him to carry, not to burn him up yet while he himself carried the fire and the knife. Now, I wonder, has he been carrying a fire for three days? He's not going to have any kitchen matches out there, nor any blow torches. How did he get that fire? And that really is not important. The important part is that this writer is telling you, telling us that everything is going to, going to be really looking bad. But we know, or we're going to find out, that God takes care of everything on this. So Abraham took the wood and the burnt offering and laid it on his son while he himself carried the fire and the knife and the two walked together. When you're having fun, time flies. So we've got 
time from just the last chapter or the chapter before, he was just weaned. Now he's big enough that he can walk for three days. Then the suspense builds. Verse 7, Isaac spoke to his father Abraham. Father, he said, and here's what the father says. Here I am. I'm here to serve you, my son. Here I am, he replied. Isaac continued, Here are the fire and the wood, but where's the sheep for the burnt offering? Wonder what's going through through the mind of Isaac right here. We got the fire, we got the wood, but what are we going to offer? There's no sheep here. And Abraham knows what he's thinking and, and, and listens to him. And he says, My son, Abraham answered, this is verse 8, God will provide the sheep for the burnt offering. Then the two walked on together. Isaac had to have been wondering, where in the world is that sheep going to be coming from? We haven't seen any. We've been walking for three days. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built an altar there, arranged the wood on it. Here's a scary part. Next, he bound his son Isaac and put him on top of the wood of the altar. Isaac now is beginning to wonder. He has to be thinking, uh-oh, maybe I'm the sheep that's going to be here this day. Abraham reached out and took the knife to slaughter his son. Here's verse 11. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. And here's Abraham's response. Here I am. Here I am, he answered. And you think, hooray, hooray, the, the soldiers, the military is getting here. We're going to be saved. Verse 12 says, do not lay a, your hand on the boy, said the angel. Do not do the least thing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you did not withhold from me your son, your only son. Now, there's an expression, there's a, an ex repetition, your only son. That's the one that's supposed to be, that's going to carry on his lineage. But the, here's, this is a little odd for me. This is an angel doing this. The angel says, "You, since you did not withhold from me your son. Verse 13 says, Abraham looked up and saw a single ram. Isn't that nice? Here's the sheep going to come in now. He looked up and saw a single ram caught by its horns in the thicket. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering in place of his son. Don't you know that Isaac was the happiest moment of his day was see that sheep over there, or that lamb, that ram? Because uh, now he realizes that maybe this is a way out of here for me. Verse 14 says, Abraham named that place Yahweh Yirai, which people today say, on the mountain, the Lord will provide. That's the name of that mountain. We get our names in Israel just like we do with the American Indians. I have a son-in-law that's Chickasaw, and you would expect something like this, but his last name is Wolf. And I went walking in Walmart yesterday up in Denison, Texas, and I met this man and I thought he was Spanish, so I started speaking Spanish to him, but he said, no, he's Choctaw Indian. So as we talked, I told him about my son-in-law. His name was Wolf. And he said, yeah, we have names like that. He said, I have people that I know in the Indian tribe. One of them's the last name is Rising Sun. One of them's last name is You Talk A Lot. That's the whole thing is his last name. Abraham named that place Yahweh Yireh, which people today say. So this is a man talking. Today they say this. They still say it to this day. This is not God saying they still say it to this day. It's a man telling this story. They still. This is still said today. On that mountain, 
the Lord will provide. You see what a long name that is? On the mountain, the Lord will provide. A second time, the angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven, and he said, I swear by my very self, oracle of the Lord, that because you acted as you did, and not withholding from me. Now, it's not withholding him from God. This is an angel. Not withholding from me, your son, your only one, the only son you've got. Verse 17 says, I will bless you and make your descendants as countless as the stars of the sky. You've heard that before, hadn't you? And the sands of the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the gates and of their enemies. Same two promises as before from God. Land and progeny. The promise of progeny. Your family will be carried, carried on, your family name, and you're going to get some land. And in your descendants, all the nations of the earth will find a blessing because you obeyed my command. And verse 19 says, Abraham then returned to his servants, and they set out together for Beersheba, where Abraham lived, which is down in the southwestern part of Israel. And last of all, in this chapter, we have Nahor's descendants. Now, you remember who Nahor is? He's the brother of Abraham, and they had three sons, Arah, Abraham, and Nahor. Now, at the same time, this is, this is verse 20. This, there's four more verses, and there's one thing that's very important in it. And so you can tell me what it is, maybe. Verse 20 says, Sometime afterward, the news came to Abraham. Milcah, too, has borne sons to your brother Nahor. So these are going to be his nephews. 21. Uz, his firstborn, his brother Buzz, I don't know if they're twins, Uz and Buzz, and Kimwil, the father of Aram, Chesed, Heso, Fildash, Jidlap, and Bethuel. Bethuel, here's the, the important part of this whole thing right here. Bethuel became the father of Rebekah. Rebekah is going to play a very important part. Bethuel became the father of Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. His concubine, whose name was Ramah, also bore children. Teba, Gahim, Tahash, and Ma'ak. This chapter ends with this. And we're just about to change from one generation to another. We're going to change from Abraham and Sarah, because in the next chapter, Sarah is going to be buried. We're going from one generation with Abraham and Sarah to a new generation, which is going to be Isaac and this only girl that's mentioned in all of this genealogy in this list is Rebecca. Ordinarily, whenever you list the generations of people, it's the son of, the son of, the son of, the son of, the little girls. But this one has a girl listed. And the reason it has that girl listed is she's going to be a special person, especially to Isaac. So going back to the concept that the Israelites were influenced by the cultures around them, and the cultures around them believed in child sacrifice, this story could be there in part to emphasize that God does not desire child sacrifice. And if you go through the Old Testament, there are many verses that condemn child sacrifice. And I'm just going to list these verses. You can look them up because there's way too many of them to read. Leviticus 18.21, Deuteronomy 18.10, Deuteronomy 12.31, 2 Kings 16.3, 2 Kings 
23.10, Jeremiah 7.31. And then I found Hebrews 11.19. It says, Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. Also, the passage kept on referring to Isaac as Abraham's only son, which is how Jesus is referred to, that Jesus is God's only son. Now we know God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit are one. I once had a Muslim friend tell me that Muslims only worship one God, unlike Christians who worship three. And I said, which three gods do you think the Christians worship? And he goes, well, you call them the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I explained, those aren't three separate gods. That's one God. One of the best metaphors that I've heard of for the Trinity is the, the fire. When you see a fire, we think of that as the whole thing is it encompasses it all is God the Father. It puts out light, which is Jesus is the light of the world, and it also puts out heat, and the heat is what we call the fire of the Holy Spirit. So when we think of a fire, we can think of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, but it's all one thing. It takes all three of them to make one thing, and you can't separate them. Okay, Father Fred, that's all the time we have for today. Do you have any closing thoughts? We're reading the Bible. It's different, and it's going to be difficult. If you've always been told that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, it's going to be difficult if you've always been told that everything that's on that page has come right off God's lips. It's going to be difficult, but try it. Listen and check these scriptures and see if that might not make some sense to you. Okay, Father Fred, I hope you have a good weekend. I'm going to because Notre Dame plays at 2.30 today. Who are they playing? They're playing a little bitty place, Tennessee State, I think it is. Oh, so Notre Dame ought to do pretty good. They ought to, they ought to collaborate. All right, Father Fred, talk to you later. God bless.